Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver. And I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Fictor, Robert Talese, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Kim Q. Hall, Professor of Philosophy at Appalachian State University. Her new book, Queering Philosophy, is just out from Roman and Littlefield. Why isn't there a queer subfield in philosophy? How has institutionalized philosophy continued to develop without a recognized specialization in queer philosophy? What would it mean to care queerly for philosophy? And how might that change not only the field, but the possibilities for living? These are just some of the questions raised by Hall in Queering Philosophy. Hall diagnoses philosophy's straight habits and shows how an intersectional approach to queering philosophy can allow us to practice philosophy otherwise. By building a promiscuous archive to think along with many questioners of dominant norms, Hall argues for a pursuit of wisdom that is relational, experimental, and attuned to other ways of life. Kim Q. Hall, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks so much, Sarah. I'm very happy to be here. It's great to have you. So let's start off with with you. Um, What is your background as a philosopher, and how did you come to write this book on queering philosophy? Yeah, so I, when I was an undergraduate student, I had no idea when I began undergraduate studies, I had no idea what philosophy was. Um, I started out as a pre-med major, and uh, I, I just thought that, you know, school was something that one had to do to get a job at the end of it, um, and that there were only, as far as my family was concerned, certain things um, that one should study in college. Uh, one of those was medicine, the other was law, and another one uh, uh, would be business. So I tried the uh, pre-med route, and that really didn't work out uh, for me. I, you know, Now I'm interested in ecological questions and other kinds of, of questions to do with science, but I really wasn't um, the way, I guess, you know, science was approached in the classroom wasn't something that really grabbed me. But I ended up taking a philosophy class. And, um, and that just really blew me away. Uh, I had, I didn't realize that there was, there were all kinds of people who had written, continue to write and and talk about these ideas, right, and these questions. And it was reading uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Angela Davis, in particular, that really helped me to make sense of some things that I had experienced and continue to experience in my life. And I thought, well, this is, these are questions that matter um, for my life, for, you know, thinking about questions of social justice in the world. And that's really what got me into philosophy. Um, So, and, and honestly, those kinds of questions also inform my uh, interest in writing this book. Um, I, you know, somebody who works in philosophy at the intersections of feminist philosophy, uh, philosophy of disability, philosophy of race, queer theory, and environmental studies. And I'm interested in those intersections with questions about identity and embodiment and how power works, um, you know, in terms of, of, of constructing norms regarding identity and embodiment uh, that inform both our experiences of oppression and strategies of resistance. So broadly speaking, those are the kinds of things I'm interested in. 
But, you know, over time, as I was reading and writing work uh, at the intersections of queer theory, feminism, and philosophy of disability, it just always struck me that queer theory has never really been taken up. Um, and, and queer philosophy has certainly never become a recognized subfield in the discipline of philosophy. And I just found that so puzzling, especially because I was reading work uh, by folks who are in other disciplines, like Michael Warner, right, or Jasper Poir, and so on, who were talking about, um, you know, queer theory, or even David Halper, and queer theory has been as being completely institutionalized and perhaps no longer queer because of it, um, or queer theory being over or somewhat passe. And I thought, but that's not true in philosophy. In philosophy, there's never been a queer philosophy that is recognized as a subfield in the discipline. And my evidence for that that I talk about in the book has to do with, you know, the absence of jobs in which someone is searching for an area of specialization in queer philosophy, uh, the absence of sort of thinking about or in curricula of a queer philosophy course that would be on the books. You find that in some cases, but for the most part, uh, there is no sort of standard offering of a queer philosophy course in philosophy departments. Um, and, and so I thought, well, you know, how could that be? And of course, I also think about that with the fact that, um, as has been noticed and written about by folks like uh, Linda Martine Alcoff, that you know, philosophy has a diaspora in which all kinds of folks who have training and terminal degrees in the field actually have gone on to other fields, right? They have their academic homes in other departments, in other disciplines. And Judith Butler, one of the um, a key figure in queer theory, um, talks about being that well, she wants to resist thinking of herself as that other of philosophy, but she talks about this other of philosophy, the the philosophical work that is disavowed by the field's mainstream. So, you know, those kinds of questions, how do we sort of think about this nexus between uh, queer theory and philosophy? Um, what might it mean to think about queering philosophy and really grappling with that institutional reality of the failure to uh, of philosophy to really arrive uh, after thirty years of being in more than thirty years of being in existence, its failure to arrive in philosophy as a recognized subfield. So, yeah, and I you've started to talk about um, the argument you lay out in your introduction about it. It's called queering philosophy. Why now? And you've started to say. Part of the reason why now is because it's not been earlier. Um, and <laughs> right. I, like it's just because it's, yeah, I mean, the, when you lay out the evidence for how it has not arrived, it's really startling. Um, but before, I, before I'm going to let you like spin that argument on even more and, and say um, more about why now, right? Why, why not only it hasn't arrived, but why, why we need it. I just want to read this quotation that, um, resonated so much with my own experience and that um, I also try to say to, you know, those one or two really amazing students who come up and they're really motivated by by questions of, of normativity and social justice. Um, and you write, it is not hard to understand why those of us who are members of oppressed groups might be drawn to philosophy. 
its critical stance toward dominant beliefs and values resonates with those who've been targeted by the violence of those dominant beliefs and values. For members of oppressed groups, philosophy can be particularly alluring until one realizes that philosophy itself has been wielded in the service of normalizing violence, rationalizing oppression, and sustaining injustice. And so, and that's the end of that quote. And one of the things I sort of read the book as as an exploration of that tension, right? That um, philosophy holds this promise, and then its institutionalization shuts it down. And then the book, in a way, is offering these queer practices to make philosophy otherwise, and what you're going to later call queer care for philosophy. So, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think so. That is precisely what I'm grappling with and really also am grappling with its uh, its unresolvable nature, right, in some way, um, in terms of thinking about queerness and what queerness means in terms of this, um, you know, uh, critique of the norm or critique of normalization um, and the kinds of assimilation that happens with institutionalization. Uh that that was certainly my experience, you know, in uh, philosophy and becoming interested in philosophy. I found, as you know, as I said earlier, I found um, in my philosophy classes ideas, you know, tools really for thinking about how things could be otherwise. Um, really resistant ideas, right? That laid out what, what oppression was, how it works, um, you know, and and really. Uh, inspiring and empowering ways, right, for me as an undergraduate student. But at the same time, uh, you know, one is sort of within a discipline where um, those kinds of questions and certainly the subfields where those questions tend to, uh, uh, you know, inform work in, in the field like feminist philosophy or philosophy of race, philosophy of disability, and of course, what, what has never been the queer philosophy, um, that we find those fields really being deemed kind of too specialized, um, where you, if for folks who are interested in, like I was specializing in one or more of them, um, you're told also to specialize in something mainstream, right, in order to be marketable. And you're it's it's curious to me that one always had to filter in some ways one's interest in those areas through mainstream figures and questions in order to count as doing real philosophy because there was always something outside of real philosophy that um that work was was deemed as doing that work in feminism or philosophy of race and queer studies and so a lot of folks you know have had that experience in the job market of uh, interviewers assuming that what you do is somehow not philosophy <laughs> in one way or the other. And so people like Christy Dodson and Gail Salomon have written about this. And certainly I experienced that too. And I write about some of that in the book. Um, but, but yes, I think also when we think, so that's a kind of institutional uh, reality, but also when we think conceptually about uh, tradition, the tradition of, of uh, Western philosophy, um, we think about its ideas of reason or its ideas of what it means to be a person or be a human being and how those concepts have historically and at present been wielded against um, people of color, disabled people, women, queer people, 
this is something that shows that while we have these ideas that are fundamental for thinking about rights, right, that not everyone really has been included within those categories, that within Western philosophy, there is also this tradition um, of, of rendering whole groups of people and their histories and ideas and experiences disposable. Yeah. And, and so, and we'll get to the chapter on the pandemic, but mm-hmm. it, it feels a little absurd to ask. And so why now? Is this a concern? Oh. After, like a million people have just been allowed to die. Um, but I, but, but so why now? Right? Why do we need queering philosophy now, given, given the situation that I think you've really vibrantly painted for us? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to do a lot with that question of why now um, in the book. And one of the things that I'm doing is just noticing how that appears just in talking about queer theory, Um, you know, queer theory now and then, uh, or thinking about, um, you know, is there queer theory anymore, right? Thinking of queer theory as somehow passe or what's left of queer theory. These are questions that are asked. And of course, uh, thinking about philosophy, why talk about queer theory now if in some quarters people want to say it's passe, right? <laughs> is, it, is it too late, right, in some sense? And I, of course, argue against that. I wouldn't have written the book uh, if, if I thought, in fact, <laughs> there was nothing to say about it. Uh, but, but, but also to work it as, a, as part of understanding what queer is and what it does, because you know, folks like Elizabeth Freeman, who has a concept of chrononormativity, uh, really, you know, asks that question, you know, why, that, to sort of put into question the notion that that which is queer is somehow contemporary with it or hip, like it speaks to a present or even a future necessarily. Um, she's thinking maybe the point of being queer is to kind of be kind of lagging behind um, just outside, being a, in some way outside of of um outside of of that linear progressive narrative of time in which we understand the present is better than the past and the future is somehow going to be the best yet and you know i think about that in terms of how ideas and whole fields can be just written off um as no longer useful um, you know, what does that mean when we're talking about a field that's talking about marginalized experience experiences of exclusion, um, what does it mean to say that that's no longer relevant for us now uh, when those exclusions continue to happen? And so part of, of what I do is to really press on, you know, to, to, to challenge that idea that the way that, that our work should proceed is to always move on to the next thing, which is always better. Robin Wegman thinks about that as the latest object of study. You know, where we have queer and then maybe that's replaced by crip or something like that. And instead to think about these concepts in a cross-generational way that sustains some of the tensions between them, areas of overlap, trying to think about what it is, how they are in relation to each other, but also how it is that none of them alone really encompass all. Um and to try to think coalitionally in cross-movement ways um, in terms of how we theorize these experiences of not belonging, 
or being excluded, somehow being, you know, outside of that, which is the norm. Yeah. And the, um, you move it, then the project moves into a chapter called Queer Matters, um, which begins with a story in italics. And you use that italics um, formatting throughout the book. And it, it seemed to me on reading it that this was a writing practice that you was a, a mode of doing what you're arguing for in this chapter, which is making queer spaces within the straight habits of institutionalized philosophy, right? So we are, we're in an academic book, and then you break open the genre with an italicized story. Um, and so, and so I, I'd love you to talk about how this chapter helps us understand the strange absence of queer philosophy and, and, and kind of through this practice, right, of, of opening it up. Yeah. Um, well, so in terms of the italics, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, that's definitely what I'm, I'm trying to do. So I'm glad that it resonates. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know, it, it, to think about how it is that philosophy is done, to think about queering philosophy is not something that is simply adding LGBTQ experience uh, or questions to what it is that philosophy does, even though that is important, right, to think about philosophically from LGBTQ experiences, for sure, um, including thinking against, as Bonnie Mann says, you know, what it is that philosophy is, you know, that that's what, what pluralism really means. It's not just that we add all these perspectives, but we're still doing the same thing in the same way. But in fact, that engagement or thinking from excluded perspectives is something that should also challenge normalized practices within the discipline and the stories that philosophy tells about itself. And so I try to add different stories in there for one, uh, but also to think about, you know, the things that, that really often don't get included in uh, philosophy uh, texts, which has to do about the person writing the work. Um, how is it that, you know, really trying to bring together theory and practice in some way in terms of thinking reflexively back on oneself about how one is situated in relationship to what it is one is writing about. And that is also the work that the italics tries to do, which is to say there is behind this text someone who spent this time thinking and writing these ideas, but at the same time who lives in the world and has these experiences and as a result has a certain perspective on them. How, what would it mean to also make that, to materialize that in the text to some degree, to not make it all about that, because it's not a biography, it's not an autobiography, but, but to really sort of say that there is a relationship um, between, or I, my, my hope, at least for a querying philosophy, is that there's a relationship between the what and the how, the how we do it, um, but also the what it is, right, that we're, we're saying and putting forward. Um, so I, I try to do that. And one, one, the passage that I think you're mentioning there that opens that chapter uh, is an experience that I had, <laughs> but it was at a philosophy conference, which um, it was an experience of, you know, going to a panel and uh, in a panel that was in a, a marginalized subfield. And because it was a panel in a marginalized subfield, many people in the audience were members of, of 
underrepresented groups in the field. And so we're sitting there waiting for the panel to begin and the door opens and uh, there's a, a white <laughs> man in a suit who um, looks around at the people sitting there and quickly shuts the door. So if it happens once, you think, well, they just realized they were in the wrong room, right? But sitting there, that happened several times. Several people, some people opened it and closed it quickly more than once. And it was it was so striking that there, you know, a number of people in the room, me included, just kind of laughed. We just started laughing. And that was really wonderful because we all, without ever, you know, conferring with each other, we understood what was going on and also what that meant about our place uh, in the field. And the response was laughter which kind of opened a space to think of oneself as possibly being in it <laughs> in some way, right? It was a it was a critical and resistant move rather than sort of like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here. That kind of, it wasn't that at all. It was a laughter in the face of that, which I found really wonderful. So I, you know, I in that chapter on queer matters, I tried to think through how it is, you know, when we think about this question, why has, after more than 30 years, there never been a subfield called queer philosophy that's been recognized in the field? Um, you know, to think about that as a question also about institutional habits, how we come to understand what philosophy is as we're trained within a discipline what kinds of texts are properly philosophical, what kinds of questions are properly philosophical, which also informs who we think is properly philosophical. And so really trying to think in a critical phenomenological way about habits, that institutions also have habits, and those habits, while not conscious, do the labor of reproducing the exclusions. So that, you know, trying to do something about philosophy's straightness, right, or its heteronormativity, and I think about that in that chapter is, and I'm not trying to say these are the only habits, the only institutionalized habits, and maybe they're not even the best ones, right, but they're ones that I could see as, um, you know, definitely thematic, right, in that kind of experience, but but really thinking about um those habits of purity, universalization, and also um, uh, uh, indifference, and how it is that those work really at a non-conscious level. That if you asked a philosopher, you know, you know, are, are you biased against LGBTQ people? I imagine and hope sincerely that most would say absolutely not. And there is, again, this refers to that tension, right? Within the field, there's a field for, you know, this idea that we tolerate no dogmas, that there's, you know, all questions um, are important. It's important to ask those questions. The questions are more important than the answer. There's a concern for justice. But in practice, these injustices occur and get reproduced. And so, you know, I, I thought about just being trained within a discipline, and Foucault is is one person I talk about there who talks about indiscipline and punish, that indifference is a key feature of disciplinary power. It's, it's how 
disciplines, right, exercise power um, through a kind of practiced indifference. And that indifference to me is, is also that sense of here's this field happening for more than 30 years, really important, uh, you know, within um, humanities and social sciences called queer theory. And there's, there's no sort of sense in which it transforms philosophy, that it's taken up and engaged and becomes a subfield in philosophy. And in the meantime, people who, who work in that field or even are foundational uh, in it, like Judith Butler, um, leave philosophy. And there's this sense of one walks through the hallways of conferences or one is in the department and they're just people who aren't there. And so how to think about what it means to become indifferent to the people who aren't there, who whose experiences are, you know, informing how it is we think about personhood and what it means to be human and all of and reason and all those things. Um, but also, you know, people's lives and their careers. Um, that that business as usual continues. So that's that's what I, I try to think through is how institutions have habits, how those habits form a, a kind of straightness of philosophy. Yeah, and and you build on that by going into questions of epistemology, and you say, and I well, and I in in the chapter on epistemology, I saw on queering as epistemic practice, I saw. Um, the theme of humility as as really central, um, and so I was hoping we could talk a bit about why humility is so crucial to queer knowing. Mm, mm, yes. Um, well, so there, I, I'm really thinking about in, in the terms of the question of humility, because queer, to be queer, um, or to be, let's say, you know, uh, lesbian or gay or bisexual. Um, or transgender, someone who whose gender and sexual gender and sexuality um, is deemed perverse, right, or abnormal in some way. To have that experience, to come to understand oneself, or to have some kind of self knowledge, means that one is required to understand oneself in relation to categories that really you didn't create for yourself, right? That you come to understand yourself as this category, a member of this, this group. And that requires uh, often, I mean, some people can experience that as completely descriptive, right, of, of their experience. But in terms of queer experience, to have a queer experience is to understand that there are whole parts of your way of understanding and uh, yourself and moving through the world um, that aren't captured by that category. And that belonging to a group requires being silent about them. And that that happens in dominant contexts, but it also happens within non-dominant ones as well. And I found um, Liddell McWhorter has written about this and I write about her in the book, but also Mariana Ortega and Maria Lagones. I found really useful, you know, for thinking about this idea of humility uh, in the face of that, because that recognition that with these categories um, that define social group membership, that there's always something that isn't translated there, that 
from a queer perspective, the humility is is that attunement to that which isn't captured, that attunement in some sense to opacity, um, to the thing that can't be translated, to a kind of thing that can't be known, maybe is unknowable, is rendered intelligible within the way that the group understands itself. Um, but that, you know, so so that humility, I think, is is trying to think about how we come to understand ourselves as members of a group, but also members of multiple groups, a certain kind of multiplicity of the self, how to have a way of understanding queerness as a practice of knowing that is not certain about who one is, <laughs> not certain about who belongs or doesn't belong in the group, but maintains a critical openness to that which is excluded from the group, right? That which the, the terms of membership really don't include. Um, and to really have that be a part of a practice, an epistemic practice that's really crucial for coalitions and for solidarity, to try to think about a kind of collective uh, knowing, a knowing with or knowing alongside, as opposed to that solitary individual knower who is certain that these are the criteria <laughs> for membership and we know who possesses them and who doesn't. Queer experience is that experience that, that is always left out of that, right? That is the thing that becomes the constitutive outside for that coherence to exist. Yeah. And you, you, you build on that, um, on that openness to uncertainty and that, um, that lived experience of, of exclusion and then taking that into one's practices of, of trying to know, uh, you know, group membership and know other people and know the world. Um, you then move into this chapter. It's, uh, I think it's the only chapter title that doesn't actually have queering in the title. The chapter is Power, Life, and Death. I it was a really nice, it, it was, um, I thought, helpfully interruptive um, that you did that. And it you connect in this chapter bio and necropolitics um, to look at how queer lives get framed in philosophy and also right broadly outside of philosophy and you you put this into relationship to pandemics um and you you make this really important argument about how the aids pandemic actually gets called um an epidemic um as a way of denying how broadly it's still affecting people um so so what's the queer work of reframing or the queer reframing that you do in this chapter um against these issues of, of death, right, of, of letting die. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, thinking um, really with Jasper Pouar and one of several people, Judith Butler also in that chapter, but of keeping biopower and necro, the biopolitical, the necropolitical intention with each other, understanding that there is a relationship between them, that these practices of of making live and trying to optimize right life um, that are directed at the population that characterize biopower um, coexist and produce also a kind of have as a part of them this necropower where disposability there isn't a, an effort to optimize life but a but a sense of not only rendering a population killable but um, 
but creating death worlds, as Chilman Bembe puts it, um, where people are cast out of life, and that that works on a global scale. Um, and I, you know, throughout the book, but in this chapter also, I'm thinking about all, you know, how this works within the in philosophy, philosophy as we tend to tell the story of philosophy and in philosophy classrooms, often at least within a mainstream context, um, the, how those stories tend to appear in philo- philosophical texts. Um, but then, uh, you know, also what, how are those stories experienced as well um, in ways that may not be always expected by folks who might be teaching philosophy in this way? Um, you know, where, like, if you're, I, I in that uh, chapter, uh, go back to the trial and death of Socrates, again, trying just to think about texts that tend to be typically taught at an intro level. So someone who really doesn't have, you know, a background in philosophy might encounter those dialogues, um, the Apology, the Crito, the Phaedo, they might encounter those dialogues as a, an introduction to philosophy. What does it tell them about life and death? And its relationship, what you know, how does it, what does it say about the state, right? The relationship yeah. of the state to it's these such questions. Beautiful reading, yeah. And so, um, you know, and, and it, it tells a story that really is is something that that is profoundly alienating uh, for people who who are targeted by the state, who are rendered disposable by the state, um, and so whose lives, right? Um, you know, have to have to be examined in order to be worth living. If we think about what, you know, Socrates' claim that the unexamined life is worth living, what are those lives that are worth living? Whose lives are we talking about? And I carry that through to the question of, that Judith Butler asks about grievability um, and looking at uh, AIDS and, and COVID as also, you know, raising questions about grievability, whose whose lives matter, whose lives are of concern, and how does that question frame how it is that we characterize a phenomenon as an epidemic or as a pandemic? And I realize that there are standard scientific definitions of these terms, but I think part of what uh, philosophy does, and certainly part of what queer theory has done uh, with respect to HIV AIDS, is to look also at the epidemic of signification, um, as Paul or Treckler uh, put it, that has informed um, how it is that uh, questions get asked about it, how it is that resources get put into helping people, um, how it is that some people are completely forgotten, rendered ungrievable, and left to die, made more precarious in some sense by those definitions. And so I didn't want to, and I don't think we should conflate AIDS and, and COVID. I um, you know, agree with Che Gossett and Eva Hayward that really the connections between them have to do with racism, right? <laughs> Thinking about how it is that um, that racism is is something that can unite them, and that what we what we can learn by putting them in relation to each other is to look at not only when whose lives are being counted, whose lives who is affected, and who among those affected is counted 
when we start to think about epidemics and pandemics, when we decide to move between those, but also how we think about when they're over. And in terms of AIDS, that's told often as a a story of the success of biomedicine, that there are treatments right now that allow people to live um, with AIDS, but it that does not tell the story of all the millions of people around the world who continue to die from it and who have no access to these treatments, to these, pre- to these prevention measures. Um, and so their lives are rendered ungrievable, not mattering, um, as we tell this story about the success of biomedicine with respect to HIV AIDS. And we even see that sometimes in thinking about the history of ACT UP, I mean, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which had many chapters, um, has some chapters uh, still, but it had many chapters. And it was, it, it had many uh, subcommittees, right? Subgroups organized around all kinds of things, um, you know, linking uh, poverty uh, and AIDS, thinking about questions of food, um, all of those things that weren't simply about uh, getting vaccines into arms. Uh, making treatments available. And I think that uh, mainstream, you know, discourse of of AIDS um, and COVID thinks about both of them in in those terms. And my suggestion, and I'm building on the work of queer people of color who are writing about uh, COVID and AIDS as well, Chagasset, as I mentioned, um, that It's not until we address the underlying structures of oppression that constitute racism and homophobia and transphobia, misogyny, all their interrelationships. We don't address that. We don't end AIDS. We don't end COVID, right? That it's not just about this uh, biomedical depoliticized phenomenon having to do with a virus, Um, that it is also about the structures of our society that in bio and necropolitical tension uh, seek to let others live, optimize their lives, right, improve their health while rendering other populations disposable and creating death worlds. Yeah, and... This links, you know, I think directly to the discussion then you go into in on queer ecology, um, and 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 you know talk about death worlds, right? Like the extractivism and exploitation and um, capitalism. Um, but okay, so but I, there's a line I love. I want to. There's a beautiful line I want to get to. I'm I'm trying not to like um, dwell too much, but it's they're just so connected, um, and I love the ordering of the chapters there. Um, but there's this line in the queer ecology chapter that you write, um, nature's queerness is a matter of its becoming in relation. Um, and if anybody's working on a love letter who's listening, I, I recommend this as a line in your love letter. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful line. Um, and becoming in, in relation is an important theme throughout the book, um, but seems particularly important in this chapter on nature, right? Where nature is going to come up against this concept of of queer and so 
So why is queer ecology an important intervention in thinking about environmental ethics, thinking about climate change, and thinking just in this bigger way about something called nature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, well, and, you know, as I start, I start that chapter just, you know, thinking about how it is that, you know, the natural is wielded against queers, um, that you know, to be queer is to be unnatural. Um, and so I think, you know, really thinking about what kind of queer perspective might there be on nature or, or what we think of as, as non-human nature. Um, and part of that involves also questioning how so much of the conversation within environmental uh, philosophy is concerned with, um, you know, trying to think about these categories of the human the animal and the natural, um, and really identifying characteristics that should make us care about non-humans. So, you know, if we think about why should why should uh, human beings care about animals? Well, because look, these animals possess um, uh, rational capacities. And since we value rational capacities for personhood, we might say that they are persons. So we have that kind of not valuing difference, um, but really thinking about having an ethics that's about sameness, about uh, valuing that which is similar and trying to make the case that that this is what is similar. And there've been, there's certainly people who critique that. um, But I'm really also thinking about how it is that a queer ecology is asking us to think in more expansive terms about what we're talking about when we talk about ecology um, and to really push against this this sense that what we need to do is to find queer animals in nature, right? That there's this impulse to kind of say, well, look, uh, it really is, queer people really are natural because because look at look at what these penguins do, right? <laughs> they are separated or something, and so um, and that's great. Like I love those stories, right? But but that is that is not what I think a queer ecology um, is about. And so the the notion of the becoming in relation is to really think about to think relationally about um, vulnerability. That in some sense, having an, an ethic that can address environmental catastrophe involves really being able to challenge human exceptionalism, uh, but also to be able to think that in that challenge, we're also really calling into question these categories and understanding that interdependency um, of planetary life and an interdependency that isn't just about the wilderness. Uh, I I look at you know folks who've you know this notion of the wilderness is this profoundly settler colonial kind of idea of a place where no people are, which has always been premised upon removing the people who were there. So you know whether or not there is a wilderness, a queer ecology is not oriented toward a wilderness. It's not even thinking about queerness itself as a kind of wilderness or wildness, um, but to really think about it as a being in relation to layer, I build on Eli Clare in this respect, layers and layers and layers upon history 
that have given rise to our current situation. And in that moment, our ethics, the way, the question is how do we live with, you know, understanding that we are in this relation to layers and layers of history, that we can't remove ourselves from it. We can't purify or restore what has been lost, but how can we be in relation in ways that come to care for what remains, um, to care for, um, you know, that which perhaps isn't lovable, um, not the cute penguins, right? But really thinking about um, all facets of, of planetary life and the vulnerability that defines, uh, you know, what it means uh, to be in the world and, and to be interdependent um, and to live with loss. And I think that that is a kind of queer ecological practice that isn't about this is what you should do in terms of trying to restore a place uh, that has been polluted, but really try to think about, okay, how do we live in relationship in non-destructive ways, live in relationship to what remains and try to um, move forward collectively in that way. Yeah, and you've begun you've to talk about the the ethos or the ethics. Um, and and I'll admit, when I saw there was a chapter on ethics in the book, I did feel a dread that I have developed over the course of my philosophical career when faced with ethics. Um, and I, I, you know, whether that's fair or not, um, but. But by the time I got to that chapter, I knew that I wasn't reading a book that was about to try to align me with a status quo or align me with something sort of pre-scripted. Um, and you really delivered in this chapter. Um, you give your reader a sense of queer ethics um, through notions like opting out and making do. And then you have these wonderful concepts like caring pr- promiscuously and caring queerly. Um, so will you talk a bit about how queer ethics helps us build queer worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I, I think that um, one of the things, what I just said with uh, talking about the queer ecology, um, it, I'm really thinking with Hartman, who writes about waywardness, and I talk about elsewhere in the book, a kind of waywardness that, that she also describes as queer. Um, and of the many ways that that she describes it, one of them is thinking about uh, to love that which has been deemed unlovable, to love that which has not been loved. And I think about that as a a kind of a queer care um, because, and and also thinking about it in terms of queering philosophy, because, you know, going back again, thinking about philosophy as loving wisdom, like what kind of love is this? Um, And, understanding that ethics traditionally um, has been about principles, right? And policies, whether we're talking about what it is that should guide policymaking or what it is that should guide individual action, it's been about kind of laying them out and making a case for them. And I call that a carceral ethics. And I call it a carceral ethics because it is always attached to some kind of idea of punishment, right? There's this thing that you should do and that there is uh, some kind of, of punishment 
um, that should follow. And of course, that's a story about ethics or, or the good that queers know well, um, given the fact that our lives are associated with all that is immoral. Um, so all of these, these principles and ideas of the good really have been weaponized and continue to be weaponized against us. And so there's a really good reason why, even for me, thinking about an ethics can kind of give me a reaction of, I don't know if I want to think about ethics. Yeah, do I want to get there? Yeah. Must I? But, mm-hmm. but, but what I'm thinking about with queer ethics is thinking about a caring otherwise, <clears throat> that, that it's a caring that is, is oriented toward that which um, is deemed unlovable, um, that which... Uh, isn't included right within our norms of what a good life or a life worth living uh, is supposed to be. And, and that's really about thinking from the perspective of queer experience about how it is that we, we create lives and values in our being together, um, whether that's in the form of, of creating our own families, um, you know, or whatever it is that there's a way of being in relationship with each other that we've created and continue to create a kind of ethics that's queer, that goes against those dominant norms. And so part of the opting out has to do with that saying no, right, to those dominant norms. And, you know, some people have thought, well, if that's all that ethics does, really, what what is it that it gives us? Um, and it, it's I, I try to say, well, but there isn't really any creation of something else unless there is a kind of saying no to something. And that saying no to conventions that actually, um, you know, are, are really detrimental uh, to your well-being is something that's really important for queer existence. That you learn to love the otherwise, but, but also you come there through saying no first. But in terms of the making do, I think about queering ethics as experimentations in living, where it's not that we have this certainty of the good, and it's, as I call it, this pole star that guides right action, and I've set out all of my criteria for what the good is, and that's how I, it's the standard I will use to assess what I do. No, it's, it's something in the making um, through experimentation without guardrails and a, a caring that is created in that context that isn't confined by what um, the mainstream says one is supposed to care about, but is about, again, caring for queerness with that which is deemed unlovable, um, for caring about one's life and the lives of others who have been deemed unlovable. And in that there's a kind of making do. And with making do, I'm building on Mariana Ortega's uh, work in her wonderful book, In Between, uh, where she talks about it as a kind of micro technique of, of way of living, where it's you can't really have something that is the utopia, um, but you find a way to continue and to make do. You find a way to get what you need to um, uh, build relationships, understand yourself, and in so doing, create 
other ways to be in the world. So I think that kind of care for that which is deemed unlovable, that resists those conventions that say what it is that we should care about, that are engaged in a process of experimentation and a kind of caring for and caring with, um, that those are the things that allow the opening of an otherwise, an other way to be, an other way to perhaps do philosophy, if we think of the queer care for philosophy, an other way to think about just what it means to have a good life. Yeah, it um, it really makes me think about there's a movement now in raising children to let them feel their feelings, even the the difficult ones. <laughs> and um, and it's interesting to live in a context where people had to like, there has to be a movement to try to reclaim negative emotions for children. But thinking about how queer children are, right, how non-normative they tend to be. And then this, this interesting movement, right, to try to meet children where they are and to try to let that to try to care for them. Um, yeah, and it, you know, I think about Lugonis's notion of playfulness and Ortega's notion of making do and the way that children are so brilliant at playing and making do mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in these very normative ways, right? Like, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that's so interesting too, because, because you're, I think that's, that's so right. And um, because, and I'm not trying to say, uh, queer people are childlike, right? But, uh, or children, but, but they have been infantilized, right? I, I know that, you know, just the experience of being considered an adult in a chrononormative sense means going through certain kinds of rites of passage. And when your life is one that's not sort of bookended, right? Yeah, you haven't been disciplined right? and yeah, normalized. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so children but also people who who are um who who live otherwise right and counter to those norms who resist them there is a a creativity in that play that allows something else to emerge yeah and i just think about the the possible moments of solidarity between people who are trying to to not discipline children into deadly normativities right these like cruel normativities let like protect their their trans kids right and let them flourish and like the kind of solidarity that's possible there between people um because there's a commitment to not to not violently imposing these straight norms right onto people um absolutely yeah yeah yeah. absolutely so so what are you working on now after after writing this beautiful book where are you where's your where are your thought practices today? My thought practices are in many places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Yeah. But but I am I one of the things I'm I'm working on at the moment um is is a a, a paper on climate anxiety from a queer crip feminist perspective. Mm. Oh, um, really yeah. thinking about um you know, what's been called the phenomenon of eco-anxiety. Uh, and, you know, really thinking about that, I mean, speaking of of young people, just the sense in which there's a kind of moral panic around it uh, regarding young people, especially like all the folks who, you know, like Greta Thunberg or whoever, who are like, well, well why should we care about the future? What future will we have? And so really trying to think through that, but with... Um, uh, how we might understand anxiety otherwise 
um, as a way of, of knowing um, rather than, you know, something that, that there should be a whole societal moral panic, right, <laughs> in response to. Um, so that's one of them. But it, it's part of, I mean, what I, my next book project is one thinking about disability um, and environmentalism. So, you know, whether we're talking about gardens uh, or thinking about climate change, oceans, plants, how to think about where uh, queer crip feminist analysis might take us in terms of, of thinking ecologically. So building on that ecological chapter, too. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>